The bitterest pain of this godly woman was for the church and for the honor of our God. So it is with God's true people. They lay it much to heart that the truth is rejected. This burdened spirit is a token of true love to God. Those who love the Lord Jesus are wounded in his woundings and vexed with the vexing of his spirit. When Christ is dishonored, his disciples are dishonored. Those who have a tender heart towards the church can say with Paul, Who is offended, and I burn not. The sins of the church of God are the sorrows of all living members of it. This also marks a healthy sensibility, a vital spirituality. Those who are unspiritual care nothing for truth or grace. They look to finances and numbers and respectability. Utterly carnal men care for none of these things. And so long as the political aims of dissenters are progressing and there is an advance in social position, it is enough for them. But men whose spirits are of God would sooner see the faithful persecuted than see them desert the truth, sooner see churches in the depths of poverty full of holy zeal than rich churches dead in worldliness. Spiritual men care for the church even when she is in an evil case and cast down by her adversities. Thy servants take pleasure in her stones and favor the dust thereof. The house of the Lord is to many of us our own house. His family is our family. Unless the Lord Jesus be extolled and his gospel conquer, we feel that our own personal interests are belighted and we ourselves are in disgrace. It is no small thing to us. It is our life. Thus have I dealt upon the fact that it is an ill day for God's people when the solemn assembly is defiled. The reproach thereof is a burden to those who are truly citizens of the new Jerusalem, and because of this they are seen to be sorrowful. The Lord here says, I will gather them that are sorrowful for the solemn assembly. They may well be sorrowful when such a burden is laid on their hearts. Moreover, they see in a hundred ways the ill effect of the evil which they deplore. Many are lame and halting. This is hinted at in the promise of the nineteenth verse. I will save her that halteth. Pilgrims on the road to Zion were made to limp on the road because the prophets were light and treacherous persons. When the pure gospel is not preached, God's people are robbed of the strength which they need in their life journey. If you take away the bread, the children hunger. If you give the flock poisonous pastures or fields which are barren as the desert, they pine and they become lame in their daily following of the shepherd. The doctrinal soon affects the practical. I know many of the people of God living in different parts of this country to whom the Sabbath is very little of a day of rest, for they hear no truth in which rest is to be found, but they are worried and wearied with novelties which neither glorify God nor benefit the souls of men. In many a place the sheep look up and are not fed. 
This causes much disquietude and breeds doubts and questionings, and thus strength is turned to weakness in the work of faith, the labor of love, and the patience of hope are all kept in a halting state. This is a grievous evil, and it is all around us. Then alas, many are driven out, of whom the nineteenth verse says, I will gather her that was driven out. By false doctrine, many are made to wander from the fold. Hopeless ones are made to stray from the path of life, and sinners are left in their natural distance from God. The truth which would convince men of sin is not preached, while other truths which would lead seekers into peace are beclouded, and souls are left in needless sorrow. When the doctrines of grace and the glorious atoning sacrifice are not set clearly before men's minds so that they may feel their power, all sorts of evils follow. It is terrible to me that this dreadful blight should come upon our churches, for the hesitating are driven to destruction, the weak are staggered, and even the strong are perplexed. The false teachers of these days would, if it were possible, deceive the very elect. This makes our hearts very sorrowful. How can we help it? Yet, beloved, all the time that the people of God are in this evil case, they are not without hope. For close upon all this comes the promise of the Lord to restore his wandering ones. We have the sense twice over. I will get them praise and fame in every land where they have been put to shame. I will make you a name and a praise among all people of the earth when I turn back your captivity before your eyes, saith the Lord. The adversities cannot silence the eternal testimony. They hanged our Lord himself upon a tree. They took down his body and buried it in a tomb in the rock. And they set their seal upon the stone which they rolled at the mouth of the sepulchre. Surely now there was an end of the Christ and his cause. Boast not, ye priests and Pharisees, vain the watch, the stone, the seal. When the appointed time had come, the living Christ came forth. He could not be holden by the cords of death. How idle their dreams! He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord doth have them in derision. Behold, the reproach will yet be rolled away from the solemn assembly. The truth of God will yet again be proclaimed as the trumpet tongue. The Spirit of God will revive His church in converts as many as the sheaves of the harvest shall be gathered in. How will the faithful rejoice? Those who were burdened and sorrowful shall then put on their garments of joy and beauty. Then shall the ransomed of the Lord return with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. The conflict is not doubtful. The end of the battle is sure and certain. Methinks I even now hear the shout, The Lord God omnipotent reigneth. 2. Secondly, let us think of something which shines like a star amid the darkness. The second verse of the text presents a glorious ground of consolation. 
Here is a rich text indeed. This passage is like a great sea, while I am as a little child making pools in the sand which skirts its boundless flood. A series of discourses might well be founded on this one verse, I mean the seventeenth. Our great consolation in the worst times lies in our God. The very name of our covenant God, the Lord thy God, is full of good cheer. That word, the Lord, is really Jehovah, the self-existent one, the unchangeable one, the ever-living God who cannot change or be moved from his everlasting purpose. Children of God, whatever you have not got, you have a God in whom you may greatly glory. Having God, you have more than all things, for all things come of him. And if all things were blotted out, he could restore all things simply by his will. He speaketh, and it is done. He commandeth, and it stands fast. Blessed is the man that hath the God of Jacob for his trust, in whose hope Jehovah is. In the Lord Jehovah we have righteousness and strength. Let us trust in him forever. Let the times roll on, they cannot affect our God. Let troubles rush upon us like a tempest, but they shall not come nigh unto us now that he is our defense. Jehovah, God of his church, is also the God of each individual member of it, and each one may therefore rejoice in him. Jehovah is as much your God, my brother, as if no other person in the universe could use that covenant expression. O believer, the Lord God is altogether and wholly your God. All his wisdom, all his foresight, all his power, all his immutability, all himself is yours. As for the church of God, when she is in her lowest estate, she is still established and endowed in the best possible sense, established by divine decree and endowed by the possession of God all-sufficient. The gates of hell shall not prevail against her. Let us exalt in our possession. Poor as we are, we are infinitely rich in having God. Weak as we are, there is no limit to our strength since the Almighty Jehovah is ours. If God be for us, who can be against us? If God be ours, what more can we need? Lift up thy heart, thou sorrowful one, and be of good cheer. If God be thy God, thou hast all thou canst desire. Wrapped up within his glorious name, we find all things for time and eternity, for earth and heaven. Therefore, in the name of Jehovah, we will set up our banners and march onward to the battle. He is our God, by his own purpose, covenant, and oath. In this day, he is our God, by our own choice of him, by our union with Christ Jesus, by our experience of his goodness, and by that spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. To strengthen this consolation, we notice next that this God is in the midst of us. He is not a long way off to be sought with difficulty, if happy we may find him. 
The Lord is a God nigh at hand and ready to deliver his people. Is it not delightful to think that we cry not to God across the ocean? For he is here. We look not up to him from afar as though he dwelt beyond the stars. Neither do we think of him as hidden in the fathomless abyss. But the Lord is very near. Our God is Jehovah in the midst of thee. Since that bright night in which a babe was born at Bethlehem, and unto us a son was given, we know God as Emmanuel, God with us. God is in our nature, and therefore very near unto us. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Though his bodily presence is gone, yet we have his spiritual presence with us evermore. For he saith, Lo, I am with you alway. He walketh among the golden candlesticks. We have also the immediate presence of God the Holy Spirit. He is in the midst of the church to enlighten, convince, quicken, endow, comfort, and clothe with spiritual power. The Lord still works in the midst of men for the accomplishment of his purpose of grace. Let us think of this when we are going forth to Christian service. The Lord of hosts is with us. When you call your class together on the Sabbath school, say to your Lord, If thy presence go not with me, carry me not up hence. Ah, friends, if we have God with us, we can bear to be deserted by men. What a word that is, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Shall not the army shout when the king himself is in their ranks? Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. When he is with us, they that hate him must flee before him. Be it our concern so to live, that we may never grieve away the Spirit of God. Beloved, there is such abundant consolation in the fact of the presence of God with us, that if we could only feel the power of it at this moment, we should enter into rest, and our heaven would begin below. Let us go a step further, and note that our consolation is likely to be found in the fact that this God in the midst of us is full of power to save. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. That is to say, Jehovah thy God is mighty to save. His arm is not shortened. He is still a just God and a Savior. Nor is he merely able to save, but he will display that ability. He will save. Come, my brother, we see around us this and that to discourage us. Let us, like David, encourage ourselves in the Lord our God. We may very well forget all difficulties, since the God who is in the midst of us is mighty to save. Let us pray, then, that he will save, that he will save his own church from lukewarmness and from deadly error, that he will save her from her worldliness and formalism, save her from unconverted ministers and ungodly members. Let us lift up our eyes and behold the power which is ready to save, and let us go on to pray that the Lord may save the unconverted by thousands and millions. Oh, that we might see a great revival of religion. This is what we want before all things.
This would smite the enemy upon the cheekbone and break the teeth of the adversary. If tens of thousands of souls were immediately saved by the sovereign grace of God, what a rebuke it would be to those who deny the faith. Oh, for times such as our fathers saw when first Whitfield and his helpers began to preach the life-giving word. When one sweet voice was heard clear and loud, all the birds of paradise began to sing in concert with him, and the morning of a glorious day was heralded. Oh, if that were to happen again, I should feel like Simeon when he embraced the heavenly babe. Then would the virgin daughter of Zion shake her head at the foe and laugh him to scorn. It may happen. Yes, if we are importunate in prayer, it must happen. God shall bless us, and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. Let us not seek power of rhetoric, much less of wealth, but let us look for the power which saves. This is the one thing I crave. Oh, that God would save souls. I say to myself, after being badgered and worried through the week by the men of modern thought, I will go my way and preach Christ's gospel and win souls. One lifting up of Jesus Christ crucified is more to me than all the fault-finding of the men who are wise about what is written. Converts are our unanswerable arguments. Happy is the man, saith the psalm, that hath his quiver full of them. They shall speak with the enemies at the gate. Blessed is the man who has many spiritual children born to God under his ministry, for his converts are his defense. Behold the man who was healed standing with Peter and John. They could say nothing against them. If souls are saved by the gospel, the gospel is proved in the surest manner. Let us care more about conversions than about organizations. If souls are brought into the union with Christ, we may let other unions go. We go yet further, and we come to great deeps. Behold God's joy in his people. He will rejoice over thee with joy. Think of this. Jehovah, the living God, is described as brooding over his church with pleasure. He looks upon souls redeemed by the blood of his dear Son, quickened by his Holy Spirit, and his heart is glad. Even the infinite heart of God is filled with an extraordinary joy at the sight of his chosen. His delight is in his church, his Hephzibah. I can understand a minister rejoicing over a soul that he has brought to Christ. I can also understand believers rejoicing to see others saved from sin and hell. But what joy I say of the infinitely happy and eternally blessed God finding, as it were, a new joy in souls redeemed. This is another of those great wonders which cluster around the work of divine grace. He will rejoice over thee with joy. O oh, you are trembling, but rejoicing. Faulty as the church is, the Lord rejoices in her. While we mourn as well we may, yet we do not sorrow as those that are without hope. For God does not sorrow. His heart is glad, and he is said to rejoice with joy. A highly emphatic expression. 
The Lord taketh pleasure in them that fear him, imperfect though they be. He sees them as they are to be, and he rejoices over them, even when they cannot rejoice in themselves. When your face is blurred with tears, your eyes red with weeping, and your heart heavy with sorrow from sin, the great Father is rejoicing over you. The prodigal son wept in his father's bosom, but the father rejoiced over his son. We are questioning, doubting, sorrowing, trembling, and all the while he who sees the end from the beginning knows what will come out of the present disquietude and therefore rejoices. Let us rise in faith to share the joy of God. Let no man's heart fail him because of the taunts of the enemy. Rather, let the chosen of God rouse themselves to courage and participate in that joy of God which never ceaseth, even though the solemn assembly has become a reproach. Shall we not rejoice in him when he in his boundless condescension deigns to rejoice in us? Whoever despairs for the cause, he does not. Wherefore, let us be of good courage. It is added, he will rest in his love. I do not know any scripture which is more full of wonderful meaning than this. He shall rest in his love, as if our God had in his people found satisfaction. He comes to an anchorage. He has reached his desire. As when a Jacob, full of love to Rachel, has at length ended the years of his service and is married to his well-beloved, and his heart is at rest, so is it spoken in parable of the Lord our God. Jesus sees of the travail of his soul when his people are one to him. He has been baptized with his baptism for his church, and he is no longer straitened, for his desire is fulfilled. The Lord is content with his eternal choice, content with his loving purposes, satisfied with a love which went forth from everlasting. He is well pleased in Jesus, well pleased with all the glorious purposes which are connected with his dear Son and with those who are in him. He has a calm content in the people of his choice as he sees them in Christ. This is a good ground for our having a deep satisfaction of heart also. We are not what we would be, but then we are not what we shall be. We advance slowly, but then we advance surely. The end is secured by omnipotent grace. It is right that we should be discontented with ourselves, yet this holy restlessness should not rob us of our perfect peace in Christ Jesus. If the Lord hath rest in us, shall we not have rest in him? If he rests in his love, cannot we rest in it? My heart is comforted as I plainly see in these words love unchanging, love abiding, love eternal. He will rest in his love. Jehovah changes not. Being married to his people, he hateth putting away. Immutability is written on his heart. The turtle dove, when he has once chosen his mate, remains faithful throughout life. And if the beloved dies, he will in many cases pine away with grief for her, for his life is wrapped up in hers. 
Even so our Lord hath made his choice of his beloved, and he will never change it. He died for his church, and so long as he lives, he will remember his own love and what it cost him. Who shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? He will rest in his love. The love of God to us is undisturbed. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, dwells with his love. He is not disquieted about it, but peacefully loves and is never moved. The calm of God is wonderful to contemplate. His infallible knowledge and infinite power put him beyond fear or question. He sees no cause of alarm as to his redeemed, nor as to the cause of truth and the reign of righteousness. As to his true church, he knows that she is right, or that he will make her right. She is being transformed into the image of Jesus, and he rests in the full assurance that the image will, ere long, be complete. He can carry out his own purposes in his own way and time. He can see the harvest as well as the sowing. Therefore, he doth rest in his love. You have seen a mother wash her child, and as she washes its face, the child perhaps is crying, for it does not for the present enjoy the cleansing operation. Does the mother share the child's grief? Does she also cry? Oh no! She rejoices over her babe and rests in her love, knowing that the light affliction of the little one will work its real good. Often our griefs are no deeper than the cry of a child because of the soap in its eyes. While the church is being washed with tribulations and persecutions, God is resting in his love. You and I are wearying, but God is resting. He shall rest in his love. The Hebrew of this line is, He shall be silent in his love. His happiness in his love is so great that he does not express it, but keeps a happy silence. His is a joy too deep for words. No language can express the joy of God in his love, and therefore he uses no words. Silence in this case is infinitely expressive. One of the old commentators says, He is deaf and dumb in his love, as if he heard no voice of accusation against his chosen, and would not speak a word of upbraiding other. Remember the silence of Jesus and expound this text thereby. Sometimes also the Lord does not speak to his people. We cannot get a cheering word from him, and then we sigh for a promise and long for a visit of his love. But if he be thus silent, let us know that he is only silent in his love. It is not the silence of wrath, but of love. His love is not changed, even though he does not comfort us. His thoughts are high, his love is wise. His wounds are cure and tend, and though he does not always smile, he loves us unto the end. When he does not answer our prayers with his hand, he yet hears them with his heart. Denials are only another form of the same love which grants our petitions. He loves us and sometimes shows that love better by not giving us what we ask then he could do if he spoke the sweetest promise which the ear has ever heard.
I prize this sentence, he shall rest in his love. My God, thou art perfectly content with thy church after all, because thou knowest what she is to be. Thou seest how fair she will be when she comes forth from the washing, having put on her beautiful garments. Lo, the sun goes down, and we mortals dread the endless darkness. But thou, great God, seest the morning, and thou knowest that in the hours of darkness dews will fall which shall refresh the garden. Ours is the measure of an hour, and thine the judgments of eternity. Therefore we will correct our short-sighted judgment by thine infallible knowledge and rest with thee. The last word is, however, the most wonderful of all. He will joy over thee with singing. Think of the great Jehovah singing. Can you imagine it? Is it possible to conceive of the deity breaking into song, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost together singing over the redeemed? God is so happy in the love which he bears to his people that he breaks the eternal silence. In sun and moon and stars, with astonishment, hear God chanting a hymn of joy. Among Orientals, a certain song is sung by the bridegroom when he receives his bride. It is intended to declare his joy in her and in the fact that his marriage has come. Here, by the pen of inspiration, the God of love is pictured as married to his church, and so rejoicing in her that he rejoices over her with singing. If God sings, shall not we sing? He did not sing when he made the world. No, he looked upon it and simply said that it was good. The angels sang, the sons of God shouted for joy. Creation was very wonderful to them, but it was not much to God, who could have made thousands of worlds by his mere will. Creation could not make him sing, and I do not even know that providence ever brought a note of joy from him for he could arrange a thousand kingdoms of providence with ease. But when it came to redemption, that cost him dear. Here he spent eternal thought and drew up a covenant with infinite wisdom. Here he gave his only begotten son and put him to grief to ransom his beloved ones. When all was done and the Lord saw what became of it in the salvation of his redeemed, then he rejoiced after a divine manner. What must the joy be which recompenses Gethsemane and Calvary? Here we are among the Atlantic waves. The Lord God receives in addition to the infinity of his joy in the thought of his redeemed people. He shall rejoice over thee with singing. I tremble while I speak of such themes, lest I should say a word that should dishonor the matchless mystery. But still, we are glad to note what is written, and we are bound to take comfort from it. Let us have sympathy with the joy of the Lord, for this will be our strength. 3. I close with a brief word upon the brave conduct suggested thereby. Let us not sorrow under the burdens which we bear, but rejoice in God, the great burden-bearer, upon whom this day we roll our load. Here it is. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, 
fear thou not, and to Zion let not thine hands be slack. There are three things for God's people to do. The first is to be happy. Read verse 14. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all thy heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Any man can sing when his cup is full of delights. The believer alone has songs when waters of a bitter cup are wrung out to him. Any sparrow can chirp in the daylight. It is only the nightingale that can sing in the dark. Children of God, whenever the enemies seem to prevail over you, whenever the serried ranks of the foe appear sure of victory, then begin to sing. Your victory will come with your song. It is a very puzzling thing to the devil to hear saints sing when he sets his foot on them. He cannot make it out. The more he oppresses them, the more they rejoice. Let us resolve to be all the merrier when the enemy dreams that we are utterly routed. The more opposition, the more we will rejoice in the Lord. The more discouragement, the more confidence. Splendid was the courage of Alexander when they told him that there were hundreds of thousands of Persians. Yet he said, The butcher fears not myriads of sheep. Ah, said another, When the Persians drew their bows, their arrows are so numerous that they darken the sun. It will be fine to fight in the shade, cried the hero. O friends, we know whom we have believed, and we are sure of triumph. Let us not think of a single second if the odds against us are ten thousand to one that this is a hardship. Rather, let us wish that they were a million to one that the glory of the Lord might be all the greater in the conquest which is sure. When Athenius was told that everybody was denying the deity of Christ, then he said, I, Athenius, against the world, became a proverbial expression. Brethren, it is a splendid thing to be quite alone in the warfare of the Lord. Suppose we had half a dozen with us. Six men are not much increased to strength, and possibly they may be a cause of weakness by needing to be looked after. If you are quite alone, so much the better. There is the more room for God. When desertions have cleared the place out and left you no friend, now every corner can be filled with deity. As long as there is so much that is visible to rely upon and so much to hope in, there is so much the less room for simple trust in God. But now our song is of the Lord alone, for great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. The next duty is fearlessness. Fear thou not. What? Not a little? No. Fear thou not. But surely I may show some measure of trembling. No. Fear thou not. Tie that knot tight about the throat of unbelief. Fear thou not, neither this day nor any day of the life. When fear comes in, drive it away, give it no space. If God rests in his love, and if God sings, what canst thou have to do with fear? Have you never known passengers on board ship when the water was rough, comforted by the calm behavior of the captain? 
One simple-minded soul said to his friend, I am sure there is no cause for fear, for I heard the captain whistling. Surely if the captain is at ease, and with him is all the responsibility, the passenger may be still more at ease. If the Lord Jesus at the helm is singing, let us not be fearing. Let us have done with every timorous accent. Oh, rest on the Lord and wait patiently for him. Your God will come with vengeance, even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. Lastly, let us be zealous. Let not thine hands be slack. Now is the time when every Christian should do more for God than ever. Let us plan great things for God, and let us expect great things from God. Let not thine hands be slack. Now is the hour for redoubled prayers and labors. Since the adversaries are busy, let us be busy also. If they think they shall make a full end of us, let us resolve to make a full end of their falsehoods and delusions. I think every Christian man should answer the challenge of the adversaries of Christ by working double tides, by giving more of his substance to the cause of God, by living more for the glory of God, and by being more exact in his obedience, more earnest in his efforts, and more importunate in his prayers. Let not thy hands be slack in any one part of holy service. Fear is a dreadful breeder of idleness, but courage teaches us indomitable perseverance. Let us go on in God's name. I would stir up the members of this church and all my brethren to intense zeal for God in the souls of men. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Would God that all were on Christ's side out of this great assembly, oh, that you would come to Jesus and trust him, and then live for him in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation. The Lord be with us. Amen. Chapter 9, page 73 I would, but ye would not. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets, and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Matthew 23, verse 37 this is not and could not be the language of a mere man. It would be utterly absurd for any man to say that he would have gathered the inhabitants of a city together even if as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings. Besides, the language implies that for many centuries by the sending of the prophets and by many other warnings God would often have gathered the children of Jerusalem together as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings. Now Christ could not have said that throughout those ages he would have gathered those people if he had been only a man. If his life began at Bethlehem, this would be an absurd statement. But as the Son of God, ever loving the sons of men, ever desirous of the good of Israel, he could say that in sending the prophets, even though they were stoned and killed, he had again and again shown his desire to bless his people till
till he could truly say, How often would I have gathered thy children together? Some who have found difficulties in this lament have said that it was the language of Christ as man. I beg to put in a very decided negative to that. It is, and it must be, the utterance of the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Christ in his complex person as human and divine. I am not going into any of the difficulties just now, but you could not fully understand this passage from any point of view unless you believed it to be the language of the one who was both God and man. This verse shows also that the ruin of men lies with themselves. Christ puts it very plainly, I would, but ye would not. How often would I have gathered thy children together, and ye would not. This is a truth about which I hope we have never had any question. We hold tenaciously that salvation is all of grace, but we also believe with equal firmness that the ruin of men is entirely the result of his own sin. It is the will of God that saves, but it is the will of man that damns. Jerusalem stands and is preserved by the grace and favor of the Most High, but Jerusalem is burnt and her stones are cast down through the transgressions and iniquity of men which provoke the justice of God. There are great deeps about these two points, but I have not been accustomed to lead you into any deeps and I am not going to do so at this time. The practical part of theology is that which is the most important for us to understand. Any man may get himself into a terrible labyrinth who thinks continually on the sovereignty of God alone, and he may equally get into deeps that are likely to drown him if he meditates only on the free will of man. The best thing is to take what God reveals to you and to believe that. If God's word leads me to the right, I go there. If it leads me to the left, I go there. If it makes me stand still, I stand still. If you so act, you will be safe. But if you try to be wise above that which is written, and to understand that which even angels do not comprehend, you will certainly befog yourself. I desire ever to bring before you practical rather than mysterious subjects, and our present theme is one that concerns us all. The great destroyer of man is the will of man. I do not believe that man's free will has ever saved a soul, but man's free will has been the ruin of multitudes. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail 
at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.